This segment is part of the Geospatial Frontier Virtual Technology Fair, hosted and created by Project Geospatial and partnered with the American Geographical Society. Hi, welcome to Project Geospatial. I'm Adam Simmons. Here with the Geospatial Frontier Virtual Technology Fair is uh, Chris Rasmussen. Uh, so Chris is from NGA, and he's got a long history working unclassified initiatives and bringing the government in the unclassified spaces over, well, not just years, but o- over a decade now. Is that correct, Chris? Yeah, yes. Uh, so if you want to give a brief introduction to what you've been up to lately and, and how everything that's been going on has impacted uh, what you've been doing or actually supporting your initiatives. Sure. Um, yeah, I've been in the, the unclassified um, space, uh, open source research, open source software um, uh, on the public facing side for 10 plus years. Um, and the, the big flagship thing that I wanted to talk about uh, was something called GeoInt Pathfinder and what that did for NGA and some lessons learned from other agencies. And then my time spent uh, with uh, Intellink uh, helping launch Intellipedia and some other kind of collaborative tools. And some of those lessons learned of, of, of over time of what I think it's going to take uh, to make these post-COVID lessons really stick and be a core part of operations, not necessarily um, you know business continuity <clears throat> or supplemental activity um, uh, to get there. So the, the real structural reforms. Um, GWINT Pathfinder uh, was a proposal uh, in 2014 when the Director of National Intelligence uh, was looking at the very aggressive small satellite launch schedule and what that meant to NJ's value proposition when theoretically somebody can buy a change detection service for $45. Um, now, space is hard. A lot of the predictions uh, at, at that time have not uh, been fulfilled, uh, but still it was good to jostle loose um, the the value proposition argument with such commercialization of GeoInt. Uh, the recommendation uh, from the DNI and the study group was to form a separate entity uh, a completely 100% unclassified entity that did everything unclassified, all unclassified tools, IT, everything, uh, to drive out recommendations for, from the commercial of GeoInt perspective that the agency would need to make to maintain relevance uh, in the small satellite and a very aggressive small satellite commercialized GeoInt world. Uh, those, those, the Pathfinders ran from 2015 to 2017. There was two of them. Uh, the first one ran for about three or four months. The next one for about nine to 10 months. Um, there was about 30 to 40 analysts uh, that were scattered aclo- across the globe. Uh, everyone was teleworking. Uh, we had all of the Commonwealth allies present as, as well as the Army and the Marine Corps. Uh, in, in that uh, activity. There was a special room that was de-skiffed within the headquarters uh, of NGA where just commercial Wi-Fi was used. Um, special passes were made to bring in your own gear, your own phones, the whole thing. Um, so that was the, a, a teleworked analytic unit that ran very, very successfully. Um, the recommendations um, uh, that were uh, given, I'll give you a couple of uh, the impacts that are being dusted off now for this uh, the, the, the COVID situation that we were in. Um, 
one of the things that culturally uh, that we had to uh, kind of mitigate was the belief that an intelligence agency's interest in almost any topic is inherently sensitive. Um, so Pathfinder made very common sense rules for how to do open research what and what to protect. Um, so some of the very rule of thumb questions that came out of Pathfinder, there had been jokes about in the hallways of the intelligence committee about this for a long time. Like, of course, we're interested in that. That's not a secret. But it hadn't really been codified and done um, like it was um, with Pathfinder. And one of the questions that, that, it's, that it, two questions are asked, two core questions is, does the group under study actively hide their activity? Yes or no? Go to the next question. If they knew that we were studying it, would they change their behavior? If the answer to the first question is no, and the second question is no, in many cases, you can work it safely publicly. Um, now, on the, there's behind the firewall on the unclassified side, but let me give you an example. Do the North Koreans actively hide apartment construction and modernization in capital cities? No. Would they change their behavior knowing that we are studying it from overhead? No. They will not d apply denial and deception techniques to an economic activity because that would be a disaster. So it's, it's a common sense question. You can run other things through it um, that if the answer is no and no, um, you have a, a safety. If the answers are yes, then you have to ask a couple more questions about whether that's safe or not. And it's not just economic questions or humanitarian disaster response. You can even run military activity through it. For example, do the Russians actively hide their construction and activity in the Arctic region? No, they did not. They put it in the paper. And in fact, they invite journalists and they have virtual tours where you can go on a website and go through some of the bases that they're constructing on the ground. Um, would they change their behavior knowing what we're watching? No, they telegraph that clearly and they put the progress often in those websites and telegraph that. So it's not just economic and humanitarian disaster are good for unclassified. You can even do certain uh, military matters and do it smartly. Um, and Pathfinder was really good at driving that out, and that had a lot of impact on uh, the classification rewrite uh, that the entire uh, NGA did called the Con Consolidated NGA Guide called the Conga. Uh, and those very common sense rules were in there. And a lot of folks remember those. Uh, I do a lot of tutorials with analysts um, and, and step them through very practical examples. Uh, and when you use those things that people remember, people remember stories and simple things like that, not necessarily, you know, 200 pages of regulations. Um, so that's been very, very um, helpful. Um, just time spent in the unclassified space is knowing where that line is. And you just it's kind of like learning a language. Um, you got to jump in and be in there. You, you, you really get a good sense of what is worth protecting, what is state of the art, what is the total percentage change over common academic and common um, commercial practices, what is truly worth protecting. Um, so fusing together commercial imagery and social media and um, supply chain data is done every day by hedge fund groups and by other researchers. So you have to ask yourself, what are we really protecting um, and that's what Pathfinder really, really helped with uh, are, are, are those kind of activities. Um, so when COVID happened, myself and a lot of the Pathfinder alumni were in these chat tools all day long, um, answering questions almost 10 hours a day uh, in the initial uh, uh, start of COVID. Of, hey, I heard you guys did this. What do you think? I'm trying to do this. What do you think of this? So that team, those alumni, were very, very helpful to the organization uh, in those collaborative technologies 
uh, around in the March timeframe when the first stay at home orders were cut um, to help the organization out um, with getting good and getting comfortable at this. And I think that NGA uh, kind of has a lead here uh, because of the commercialization of the business. There's been quite a bit of thought there uh, because of activities like Pathfinder that took place that formed a precedent. Um, often in government, it, it's people want to take the, the book right off the shelf and say, who's done this before? Um, so that really, really helped. And I think NG of where they are um, uh, and the activity uh, that is happening, I, I looking at, across the other organizations, I do think NG is kind of a leader uh, in this space, there's more work to do, and I'll get to what I believe those are, um, because I've seen part of this movie before, uh, once with launching Intellipedia, and I'll get to that, uh, and then with Pathfinder, what happened after Pathfinder. Um, so I've seen parts of the movie before, and I think with the best intentions, people are saying that we're going we're gonna to keep doing this, and this is going to be business as usual. I'm fairly skeptical, um, based upon my experience, and I, I believe that certain conditions need to be in place for it to really stick and be seen as core flagship work um, moving forward. So I'll just stop there. And before I go into the, the next parts, and if you have any, uh, any questions. Well, I, I am, I'm sure this is what you're about to get into, but I am interested in, in hearing how your best practices has, uh, as, has, has been brought in or adopted by other organizations beyond just NGA and not just other, uh, uh, other DOD organizations, but I, I actually, you know, as the military has been forced to rethink a lot of these things as well, um, how much have they come to you or come to NGA and saying, Hey, we, we we're watching this program. Let's, let's adopt this. Uh, yeah. it, you know, yeah, the, the, the lessons learned and the contacts have been um, uh, pretty broad. Uh, so I've done um, video uh, conferences like this uh, with Special Operations Command. I've done them with the Treasury Department. I've done them with elements of DIA. Uh, so it's not just NGA. Um, so the, they, they are applicable across not just necessarily the commercialization of GEOINT perspective that gives NGA kind of an advantage. And in my opinion, all the three letters will go through the open sourceization, if you will, of intelligence and be in kind of the what are we going to do value proposition wise like NGA is. It's just NGA's int, if you will, if you look at it from that perspective, has been commercialized the hardest and the fastest that has that has brought about a desire and, and, and a need to really rethink business. Um, I think all of the three letters will go through this, um, uh, but NJ is kind of first. So to answer your question, yes, it's very broad. A lot of the tools um, that we're in, uh, the Intellink suite, for example, of the, on the unclassified fabric, uh, where unclassified Intellipedia, unclassified chat tools, unclassified kind of uh, Twitter capability, blogging capability, that th those numbers just spiked through the roof, to be honest. In 2008, it was a ghost town uh, on the unclassified side. There was about a, fewer than 100 users talking to each other um, uh, about the, the virtues of open source and unclassified collaboration. Um, I may have been one of those one individuals back then. <laughs> yeah, I, and it just it, it was. I'll talk about that when I get to the Intellipedia part and, the, and my time uh, with that project. Um, but yes, there was. Uh, um, in it, the, the metrics in some of these tools were fewer than 20 users in some case. Uh, in, in, one, in the chat tools, they were uh, in, the, in the hundreds. Now they're in the, you know, the thousands and tens of thousands. Um, uh, but it, it gives you a sense of what the unclassified space was 
uh, in, in that collaborative infrastructure prior to COVID. Um, so it was a challenge keeping people in that space. Um, but yes, uh, there's, it's not just NJ and those Intellink tools. So th- those Intellink tools are available to anyone with a CAC or PIV card. So that's the State Department, every military branch. So they can see a lot of this activity that's happening in those collaborative tools. And from that, and then, you know, just other kinds of communication and, and reputation and reading the Pathfinder lessons learned that are posted there. That's how others outside of NJ have reached out and have read them and come forth with more uh, questions on how to do it. Uh, how much how much of the current circumstances do you think will push a huge uh, a bigger portion of the workforce into a more permanent stance of working in the unclassified realm? Yeah, so this is where the, the, the lessons learned from my time um, with uh, in, uh, helping launch Intellipedia and this other idea called the Living Intelligence System. And, and your, your, your audience can look for uh, the videos uh, called Toward Living Intelligence and the Living Intelligence System. There's two YouTube videos that explain this. Um, in 2006 to 2009, I helped launch and grow Intellipedia on the high side, mostly, I, the, the wiki for the intelligence community. And that's pretty pretty pedestrian sounding now to have a wiki behind a corporate firewall in, in 2020. But I can assure you installing one was very radical in the intelligence community in 2005. Um, before that, you had email, official product, message traffic, and maybe, maybe some sort of Lotus Notes open collaborative system. The idea that anyone can contribute with version control to an article was pretty radical. Oh, oh, uh, but you also had the, I'll even add that you even had a lack of uh, uh, individual organizational websites out there. Yeah. And, and that was a huge impact as well. So even beyond a wiki, that, I mean, that's, that's just scratching the, uh, that's the tip of the iceberg of what it became. <laughs> Correct. And a lot of the usage was, there wasn't a, a lot of the pages and the usage was, there wasn't a good place uh, to have just simple websites to describe what your unit was doing at that time. Now, my view of Intellipedia is I always wanted to get to the official voice. I saw that the, a lot of content was being generated, a lot of valuable reference material, a lot of people were using it as their unit's website. Um, but where where I believe that needed to go was to be the living official version. Uh, in 2006, a national intelligence estimate was attempted to be drafted in Intellipedia. And your audience can Google NIE Nigeria Intellipedia. And there's lessons learned. I believe Time reported on this. And Dr. Tom Fingar, the head of analytic um, output at the time, I forgot the title he had, uh, can explain this. And what it, the lesson learned from me from that case, and then looking at all of the content that was forming in Intellipedia, this kind of binary was forming that the content was good for collaboration, but not the product. And in that national intelligence estimate, it failed. So the agencies would not contribute together in that wiki and the traditional process won out. So what that, what that showed me is for a lesson learned from a technology's perspective is that you have to do the new thing in the new system. If you have something that is perceived as inherently better or more prestigious and these other things are lesser, you have that dichotomy. Um, so from that lesson learned, uh, I noted uh, kind of the why can't the wiki be official? And I designed this system called Living Intelligence that tried to put agency authoritative logos on things and kind of balance version control to make official product. 
Um, that was a couple of organizations uh, got in there. It was fairly successful in the beginning, but fizzled again because the flagship or where real work is done was not perceived as in these systems. So fast forward to today and how this will stick based upon those lessons learned. Uh, In my opinion, again, this is the world according to Chris Rasmussen, and these are my views, um, that if we do not do official and flagship output on the unclassified side, I believe that dynamic will form again. If the perception that real work happens on the classified side and the unclassified side is viewed as an eternal supplement and is not viewed as a co-equal environment where real work is done, I believe that the, the, the lessons learned will not inherently stick. Um, so if we do, or any organization that does, official authoritative flagship output, whatever they do that is their flagship stuff, if that is done on the unclassified side, I believe that heavy meaty mission will drive the users there and the customers there and it will stick. I, 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 in, in the long term, there are um, uh, declarations that folks are going to continue three days a week and things like that. And I think that's fantastic. But based upon my experience with the good for collaboration, not the product, I think that if we if the unclassified side is not viewed as co-equal or where real work can be done, I think that it will I think in the long term, it will not stick. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And that that that's just not uh that, that's not the case just for uh, unclassified Intelink or the unclassified environment overall. That's the case with any organization commercially as well, trying to transition operations to a new product line or a new business line. So this applies to a, a, a world of other activities as, as lessons learned, trying to uh, promote adoption and engagement for any new product. Yes, it, it's not just narrow cast to this specific case. If you draw it out from um, digital modernization that organizations attempt, if they don't do it or do core activities within those new systems or new processes, you just have additional work. And that's been borne out by a lot of um, digital modernization kind of uh, postmortems uh, where there's similar type of lessons learned. Um, so that's my opinion on the long term. I have another um, uh, uh idea uh, to make it stick. And I can talk about that a little bit more, uh, but wanted to take any uh, other questions that you had. Yeah, so uh, the one thing that I think kind of resonates with me is is what you just said is how many do, do you feel like there is certain organizations over others who are quicker to adopt? Uh, or, or it was there a certain demographic willing to adopt, or, or a certain type of analyst core, or, or groups? Do you, do you, was there a pattern to that you identified? Um, no, as far as any kind of generational um, uh, notes or uh, proclivities, like younger people are better at this. I have not found that not to be the case. Uh, I find it's more of a mindset. Um, I've used this example. This is a very old example. Uh, the top editor. Back in the day, and Intellipedia was 72 years old. Uh, he had the, by far the most contributions. Uh, I had, when I was teaching the open collaboration classes, I had brand new analysts that were in their 20s saying, this is my page. Don't edit it. He so wouldn't it, happen to be from the State Department, would he? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I know that guy. <laughs> um, I, I just, it's, it's, it's kind of a growth mindset. And I think that some folks that had some experience with it 
the thing with Pathfinder is we specifically recruited people that were good at it and we had a very a different hiring process, right? So we, 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 we hired for the people that can function in ambiguity and do this well. In the COVID case, people didn't have a choice. Some people that don't like working at home, right, or had never done this type of work were in this pool. So it, there was there was very uneven type of demographics. There were people that were really excited, like, look, I've been dying to work at home. Uh, this is the things have been overclassified and I'm glad I'm here. There was that element. But then you also had folks that had zero experience and everyone was in the pool. The thing that I think that helped a lot was when you're dispersed globally, you have to learn how to do collaborate well within collaborative technologies, whether that's version control, uh sharing documents, chat systems, a lot of folks saw that real work and decent work could be done in that collaborative infrastructure. And I think before many folks were doing a, a lot of email and a lot of, you know, more point-to-point uh, -point type of communications. The, the more kind of um, platform-based technologies, if you will, where it's not point-to-point -point like email, like, like those collaborative tools that Intelink offers and there's different versions that agencies have, I think having thousands and thousands of people having to figure that out very quickly of how to do virtual collaboration and do it well. And it's, it's not as easy as people think, right. Um, being in there, it's not just, you know, fire it up in the browser and go it's when to use version control, when to blog something, when to share this document, it's what is appropriate to put in chat again, not just IC stuff, but Slack, Slack has caused a lot of stuff to go into Slack because it is so easy to use that organizations have had to say, hold on a second, don't put everything in a chat channel. For From a knowledge management perspective, for discovery and search of content that has been generated, the people to, to find that again, if you don't have a strong search capability where all of that content is indexed by some sort of search engine, you have knowledge management problems. So if you put everything into a chat tool that's not searched well, you have not, you have knowledge discovery problems. So again, to the kind of what you pointed out earlier, this is not just IC specific stuff. There have been a lot of organizations that are, have used Slack, for example, way too much and giant walls of text have gone into Slack that should have been put in the corporate wiki for more persistence should have been done. So it's when to use Slack, when to use version control, when to use, uh, it's, it just takes time to do rather than gunning everything into email or chat services. Yeah, there's there's layers of communication that make sense for certain uh, circumstances out there. Uh, for for the mediums have their their purposes for how actionable something needs to be, and then uh, once again, records management at the end of the day. Uh, no, I completely agree with you. That makes a lot of sense, and and, and so this also is an interesting snapshot in time between lessons learned uh, as you created or brought Intelpedia to the mix uh, over 10 years ago. So, so in that time period, there's a, a whole set of services and technology that promoted a cultural need and innovation within the community. But what kinds of services out there right now exist in the unclassified realm that say, hey, if, if, if you all jump on board for using the unclassified realm, not just for doing your projects, this is the kind of benefits you'll see from today's technology. What, what do, you, do you find there's certain services that didn't exist over 10 years ago that would be of huge benefit now, that type of thing? You know, I mean, you mentioned Slack, but I, I feel like that's just that's just scratching the surface there. 
Sure. Um, as far as it, it depends on, on the, the work being done, but if you look at a patent researcher, a hedge fund researcher, a, you know, a reporter, a journalist, an intelligence analyst, those are very similar kind of knowledge worker positions where your, your job is to generate content and insight. So there's, it's not just always, you know, IC specific type of things. Um, but let, let me talk about the ones that, that, uh, that familiar with that I think that are, are beneficial um, for uh, doing good research on the unclassified side. Um, you, you're going to need some sort of very easy to use GIS system. I'm a huge fan of QGIS. Um, that is the open source um, uh, version uh, of, a, of a good a GIS system, incredibly powerful. Uh, there are YouTube videos for every plugin and every feature you can imagine uh, to do kind of geospatial analysis. Um, you're going to need some sort of storage, uh, decent-sized cloud storage. Uh, S3 buckets are good for that. Amazon, uh, very simple storage uh, that creates URLs uh, against the data that's put in there. Um, you're going to need uh, you know, coders need to be able to freely download what they need to download. Um, so there has been some um, some uh, advantages there uh, to uh, to write software against data and to scrape data. Uh, you need to be able to do uh, that freely. Um, so the, the, the GIS systems for on the imagery side, uh, you can do quite a bit of imagery exploitation within uh, a GIS um, and just view things manually. Um, from a brute force perspective, uh, to get uh, an idea of what's going on, that that's kind of um, you know very specific to the geoent business. Uh, outside of that, again, there's those general collaborative technologies which accomplish a lot of work, a lot of the staff and administrative functions, and even a lot of the uh, the research is just a, a, is done through the exchange and the creation of unstructured text, um, and, and and that that seems to be the dominant driver. Uh, in many cases, there's deeper data analysis that needs to be done uh, against things. But again, you need a pool of, of, of where to pool that data. Um, so uh, the uh, access to uh, as many structured databases that you can download and, and, and install uh, to help uh, with that parsing from a data science perspective uh, to run Python or R against large volumes of data. Uh, to come up with statistical correlation um, is 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 necessary, and that's on the on the more data oriented side. Uh, but I think that the general collaborative tools cover down a lot of business um, uh, that's transferable from not just not from IC but from knowledge workers. I think you can do a lot just analyzing unstructured text, uh, which seems to be the it, it is the dominant way that knowledge is conveyed. Um, structured data uh, is is valuable, uh, but you can do an awful lot. You don't have to be a data scientist um, to be able to uh, do high quality open source research. Um, a browser, uh, in many many cases, is the is the is what you need. Uh, and the key is just hustle. Um, a, a, a perfect example is that a Bellingcat is a website that's devoted towards open source research. And um, a lot of uh, folks use that as an exemplar. The founder of the Bellingcat website, Elliot Higgins, was an unemployed Brit in, in early you know, 2010. Um, and what, what he could do was analyze a lot of YouTube videos manually about the conflict in Syria. And he taught himself these methodologies to look for anomalies in YouTube videos uh, of the Syrian conflict, of the of the. Um, chlorine attacks and formed a brand just through sheer grit and hustle, um, just by pounding the keyboard in a browser, going towards, 
you know, looking at YouTube videos, knowing what social media feeds to follow, know what groups are doing the talking and creating the data. And, and back to what I was talking about with Pathfinder, what you're seeing now is you just have to be in this space. So kind of like graduate school, when you come in and you do a literature review, you got to you got to get to know who's doing the writing in your area. Same thing here. You got to know who's tweeting what, who's making the videos, who's writing the papers, who's posting the data. And that just takes time through hustle, in many cases, through a browser um, to get good at. Um, in the case of Bellingcat, they use all free tools, mostly Google Earth. Um, Google Earth is an outstanding resource. Um, so in, there's, a, there's a feature in Google Earth called the historical timeline. So if you zoom into an area, um, generally Google does a good job of purchasing fairly recent imagery from European sensors, from U.S. sensors. If you hit that little um, clock, in many cases, there's coverage almost every 30 days, in some cases going back 10 years. And that's I'll, say, uh, I'll say that's the one feature that has prevented me from using the web version of Google Earth is that historical timeline within that. I mean, that 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 to me is, aside from a few other smaller features, is the one thing that I keep going for the hard client for every time. Oh, it, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And as far as, you know, drawing KMLs and annotating and sharing that structured data, again, it's very easy to do. So in the GeoInt field, that's an outstanding uh, a tool uh, uh, to use as well. Um, but you know, that's what uh, you, you need to use. What's free and what's open source? What's available first? And there are very expensive um, systems uh, that that help with aggregation and, and, and curation and alerting uh, of massive volumes of information, and those come with a, a fee. Um, but in many cases, the data that are are being fed into those systems, if you want to do it. You can go hit the open API. You can go right into the GUI yourself and do it brute force. Um, and that's not cool to say in 2020 where we want to, you know, say we want artificial intelligence and machine learning to do everything. Uh, I, I haven't found a lot of the, the those um, uh, kind of statements or systems to have been. Uh, they're not there yet. Uh, I'm fairly skeptical, again, of a lot of the AI and ML uh, investments. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of them underperform. Um, substantially. And I think you need a lot of people in this space pounding the keyboard. Um, if you're going to teach the computer, in many cases, your folks are going to have to condition that data. And if they do that to teach the computer, the output better be worth the time of just teaching the computer to do something. And so uh, while I'm... And regardless I'm, of the performance there, it's also about usability and a right. lot of these things aren't user-friendly on the other side you know right. they have to output something that's user-friendly they have to be user-friendly they also have to integrate within existing workflows so you might have some set algorithms out there aside from the how good the performance is how and and how trusting they are they they haven't you know it, it's like getting a data scientist to talk to an analyst and and the two need to be met in the middle somewhere and those connections haven't been uh formalized they haven't been they haven't been operationalized it's a maybe that's the the word yeah. I'm looking for. I, I think that's a good term um and, and look i'm not i'm not approaching this from some sort of working class hero this this robot will never take my job perspective i love technology i follow it and i i love this stuff i just haven't seen a lot of the systems that i have evaluated or i've been a part of um some of them have massively underperformed and um, where brute force of 20 people was more efficient and more effective than the ML solution that was offered. Uh, now, there's been some boutique cases where 
it has been successful. But I think that, um, you know, when it comes, when it comes to this stuff, um, there's so much um, pamphlet literature and type of salesy type of stuff that's out there that when you really pound the keyboard, when they come into the organization, you need to tune those and they need to be given a fair shake for sure. Uh, and again, I've seen some fantastic technology that has automated core business and reduced hundreds and thousands of hours of time. Um, and But in general, you know, just, the, hey, we need to do some machine learning on this. You got to go, okay, hold on. Is this worth it? And and, and can this be done um, even more effectively through brute force? Um, and, and I have found sometimes that is the case um, through just grit and a browser. Um, you don't necessarily need to have um, uh, all of that. So I, you know, it's what technology is appropriate. So if you're a five person insurance company that has 200 clients, you don't need a Hadoop cluster. Um, you know, so it, it's just, it, technology is very, very trendy and it's, Hey, if you're not in Node.js, you're, you're not doing it right and all that stuff, but you got to focus on what works. And then if you do make that upgrade, are the results clear? That makes total sense. Uh, and I want to rope it back into a question we just received from the audience, by the way. Sure. So people are watching. <laughs> uh, what do you think will cause people to start viewing the unclassified side as co-equal? So you mentioned being co-equal before, and you talked about being vested in the unclassified with uh, with projects, with new projects. Uh, but, but, but how do you get them to buy into this? So uh, I, I'll start with a couple very practical things and then just kind of draw this out. Um, useful content is useful content no matter what domain it's on. So what's going to have to happen if that flagship work comes down or start to being created, that's going to have to be marketed to customers. So you're, and now we're in a kind of a better position that there are thousands of email distros on the unclassified side that we didn't have three months ago. So a lot of like folks that wanted to get out the message to other analysts in the community, other users, it, everything was done on the high side. Now you have massive email distros that have been created. You have those chat channels I was telling you about with hundreds and hundreds of people in them now. So we have an opportunity when we get to that part. Now, right now, there's data familiarization, getting comfortable with the space and kind of research kind, kind of that's going on. And there has been work that has been done official, but it's been it's been moved up. So in my opinion, that needs to stay down low and we have to create that market. Um, so when the marketing time comes um, to who, who are the, the, the end customers of it, I believe that it will be successful because if you put high quality information, who's not who's not going to read it? By saying I'm not going to look at that because it's not on you know an air gap system. So I think marketing um, and getting out to uh, other organizations. I, I have a talk at the Treasury Department uh, next week. It's just to get the message out that this will be coming. This is where we plan on putting it. And we'd like your feedback there on the low side. Um, so to make it stick, we're going to have to do it and have to create it uh, and not just say, hey, let's move this up to the other system is to keep it low and then correlate the two if we need to. And then a lot of marketing work is going to have to take place to create that market. <laughs> Excellent question from the audience, and thank you for answering that. Uh, and I also want to reflect on the title of this episode, which is Will COVID Lessons Learn Stick? How do you feel, based off of what's currently going on, uh, the, uh, well, 
the, the, the half-life or continued operations of the adoption going on beyond the current effort? Again, there's, uh, the, there's a, a lot of energy now. Um, and I hope as reconstitution starts, whatever that means to uh, the federal entity or even the, the private entity, is that people just guard against going back to default behavior. Uh, and I think that, again, not just esoteric intelligence, NGA-specific things, but I think this has shown in cases of a lot of knowledge workers that just going to the office five days a week, in many cases, that was a ritual um, that it wasn't that beneficial. Face to face and small team collaboration is not going to be replaced, even by video in some cases. And I'm not saying that everything can be done in video and version control tools and chat tools forever. But I think that um, people are going to have to put uh, kind of promises in place to not go back to default behavior. And if that's I'm going to do this three days a week um, and 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 keep doing this, and particularly on managers. Uh, if the manager is continuing to telework and continuing to create value on the unclassified side, then I think outside of the official part, which I think we need to get to, that'll help it stick rather than when reconstitution starts, everyone runs back in and then we forget what was done over the last five months. Um, so I think that um, there's conversations now of that accordion file, if you will, how high can that go? And in certain units, particularly with software developers, that can go as high as full time. Um, it, it's, it's there are certain missions that may not be able to do it. Um, but even those uh, just doing general research, uh, reading academic literature on your account, that's real work. Um, and if that's it, let's just say that you have a 24 seven operations person that necessarily can't stay at home a lot, but they can do. Um, a couple of days. So even the most extreme cases, there are a couple of days that be, can be done. But I think the, uh, this is, again, what I'm calling the accordion file is we're not going to be able to say to thousands of employees to do two days a week, no matter what. It's going to be, hey, if it can go as high as five, cool. If it go to three, fine. Um, so I don't think there's a set thing. So I think, you know, knowing where that accordion file is and then making a commitment to stick with it and guard against kind of default behavior, uh, kind of on overdrive, I think is is the key. And again, this is not just the government. The, uh, my, I have colleagues that are in the private sector that have been going to an office, and they're now just going, well, the company's going to write off the building. Um, it, it's they don't really need that much space anymore. Um, so I think there's a, a, a it's not just a government conversation. I know that you have the twitters and the the more tech. Um, jobs that are saying you could stay at home for years. Um, that's not everyone. But if you are generating software, if you are in the knowledge economy and a knowledge, a knowledge worker that works a lot with the creation of software or the use of software, when you see those declarations from the Twitters, from the Facebooks, from the Googles that are saying, eh, kind of stay home if you'd like, uh, I think that that's, that's cool. But th those are kind of outliers. But I think it's important that they're making those statements as well. Well, you just got into well, the last last couple of things you talked about. Literally got into a question somebody else just asked, and I think you spurred it a little bit. And and as the workforce is at home, at least a good portion of them is right now from the government and different analysts, and they're doing unclassified work at least the best they can, and they're discovering that this does work, uh, and and we can make this happen. We don't have to go back to the office. Um, what is what do you see the future? 
future, maybe not this year, but what do you see the potential future of big government spaces, big government headquarters buildings? Do you see it, um, especially as the St. Louis NGA buildings being constructed, trying to promote uh, a, a huge portion of the space towards unclassified work? But does it make sense to have a committed space uh, or have something more more disparate and, and, and folks working at home and doing the same thing? Yeah, with uh, the Pathfinder lessons learned, we, 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 we handed those over to the Army Corps of Engineers, and there was an impact on creating more unclassified Wi-Fi-enabled spaces for that new facility in St. Louis. Uh, so that was really cool to be a part of very, very early on uh, in Pathfinder. One of our recommendations was, you know, hey, I don't think we need this much skiff space. And it, it was, a, look, the things that were set in motion in 2003 were set in motion in 2003. I think the question you have to ask is, you know, 2020 and beyond, from a GeoInt perspective, you don't necessarily need that much skiff space. And I would like the percentages to be higher. Um, I, I've heard the numbers at 20% and things. I think it should be higher. That's Chris Rasmussen's opinion. Um, uh, but I, I think that there's, uh, we can do, and again, I think all three letters will go through this. Um, and NJ is just kind of first. Um, so I think that less skiff space is going to be part of the new normal moving forward. And you got to start someplace. And if that's 20%, that's awesome. I, I just think it should go up a little higher. I don't have a, uh, a magic number, uh, whether it's half skiff, half unclassified, but I think it just, it, it'll, it'll increase. But even outside of the secure facilities, I think that, you know, the GSAs, the interior departments, and, you know, even groups that are not have to really, really ask, do we need this? Uh, there are, uh, you know, services where you can rent office space on demand uh, that are that are popular, that are out there. I think that a lot of um, the assumptions about work and how work gets done has been um, brought into question. And for good. And I'm glad um, from this from this situation. Uh, I think there was a lot of paternalism built into um, the, the the work system in the in the United States, not just. The government. I think that again, I have family and colleagues that are their companies are saying, "Yeah, you're doing a great job." Um, I don't. We don't really. Uh, you don't have to drive out here 50 miles every day anymore, and that's been great uh, to hear. Uh, in any situation uh, with work-life balance and things that are uh, that are uh, very very important, uh, I'm, I'm glad this is happening. Um, but uh, I think that. Help. Prove the productivity out uh, in, in the uh, in, and prove that this is working. Uh, someone just asked from the audience here, uh, has there been any research on productivity and efficiency to work outside the office? And I know there's been a ton of studies from an yeah. industry perspective, but be based off of, you know, a lot of government policies, you know, based off of either per diem or travel rates can maybe affect things. And those things haven't quite changed yet. Uh, but but how uh, how, how are metrics recorded based off of best practice that you've seen, especially with Pathfinder and, uh, and, and how have you uh, recorded those metrics? Yeah. As far as the, you know, does this work? Uh, and, and there are, you know, metrics of number of hours uh, logged in here, the number of, of data sources looked at the number of outputs here. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to take a, a, a step back of people. This is, I don't think that people, change their position based upon studies and data. They, they change their position based on stories and what has happened to them. 
And uh, you can, sh- when we get into this, who can cite the most authoritative study stuff? I know that, that that's great. And there's a million, as you mentioned, there's a million telework studies out there. There's the Yahoo case. There's been studies by Rand. There have been so, so many. And until it happens to you or your unit, I think that the change of behavior is people know when they're efficient, when they're valued, and when the output that they're generating is of value and getting feedback. And when that happens at the personal level, not through some 600-page PDF report, that's when behavior changes. Um, so you can look at the, the Yahoo cases and things like that, where, you know, telework was suspended to eat and breathe Yahoo and what that did. Uh, and then people will go, well, I don't work at Yahoo. I work over here. So it doesn't transfer direct. Um, so I, I th- this is just, I think that the behavior change doesn't come through studies. Behavior change comes through doing it and seeing it firsthand. Um, so when I was, when I do these lunch sessions, I do with analysts and, 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 and divisions. I just did one last week is the feedback that I got was you speak in just not corporate jargon. It, this is plain language with very specific examples of what you look like from the outside on from web metrics. This is you in a browser. This is what you look like. A lot of folks don't know that. And I, I just gave very practical examples for, of cases um, over and over again uh, to show that this is how you can do this safely. Here's the questions to ask. Here's the security measures that you can take. So I think that studies are valuable. I'm not saying don't do the Uber study. I just haven't seen behavior change at, um, that, that people, that they get the PDF file and go, you know what? I'm going to start teleworking now because this PDF is just fantastic. Um, no, and I think people are always looking for those outlier reasons of these these nefarious individuals are obviously take advantage of the system. And you know, and and I think industry has proven, you know, then you go after those individuals, and then you see if everything still works fine. You know, and for the most part, it does. It does, uh, and that was to the the edge cases again. Um, you know, those are edge cases, and deal with that. But most most workers, uh, knowledge workers or any workers, want to do a good job, in many cases do a good job. And I'm, again, this is Chris Rasmus' view, I'm not a huge earn trust guy. You give it. And I just, I'm, I'm a very kind of flat give trust person. And I just, I write the questions on the wall. Here's the team. There's the developers. There's the data scientist. There's the, the analyst. Here are the tools. Step away and just help them succeed. And just what's again, flattening out. We've talked about this for a long time of what that means to flatten an organization out. And when you jump into these collaborative tools and you, and you, you know, everyone's in the same bucket. And of course there's different, not everyone is equal, but when you're in these collaborative systems, your reputation online as a worker within that intranet, it's open, it's pretty flat. And you can have you know, people that have stepped up and been emergent leaders in that environment that didn't necessarily have departmental rank. So I think that these tools, uh, uh, the collaborative tools that people are using in telework help flatten out a bit and people see that. Um, and I think that's been a good thing to have a forcing function to kind of look in at some flattening activities that organizations need to t- needed to take. And again, not just the government. Uh, again, there's there's private sector analogies here at banks and insurance companies. It, it, it's not just the government. Oh, that's a great answer. And I think uh, so we have we have about a few more minutes left, but we do have another question. I think 
it was, it was a kind of interesting one here. Uh, it's do you think that working in the unclassified space and, and, and the movement towards moving the unclassified space will help in preventing overclassification of products and services? Yeah. And uh, again, when you have to, when you're in this space, again, it's a forcing function. You have to make it exist on the low side. Right. Uh, so it, it, before you and many folks were they did all of their work on an air gap system and overclassification is not new. It tracks back decades. And in fact, uh, there was there's a case of the uh, the museum in Tehran of the raid in the 70s. The orders for the motor pool were classified secret, no foreign. Um, and those 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 motor parts were a classified document. So this is not anything new. But the reason that it exists is there's no incentive for um, disincentive for overclassification, right? You side on the air of caution. Now, if people are at home and have to work on the low side, you have to think differently and really ask tough questions about what makes this inherently classified. And I think that Pathfinder helped with the NGA is interested in X question. It wasn't just X. It was what specifically, what is the behavior change? Um, also people have to look at this kind of this aggregation idea. You really have to ask when you add parts. And in my opinion, there's kind of this belief that the aggregation of information leads to higher order classification. I haven't found that to be true in a geoint sense. The more unclassified data points there are, the more unclassified it becomes, not the other way around. So again, you have to ask when you're mushing this together, is it forming higher order knowledge? And is that worth trade secret worthy protection? And you look at the methodologies that are used. You look at the aggregation of the sources. And if the answer is yes, there is some black box type of trade secret Pepsi recipe needs to be locked up in the basement things, then protect those. But not just you're adding stuff. So by default, it needs to go higher. You have now, to I, add. I could see that mindset thinking back in the 90s or even in the 80s when and when when you added layers, it actually required a certain level of not just expertise, but access through levels on the unclass that normal people wouldn't be able to obtain. And, and, and nowadays it's information is everywhere. The access is everywhere. So it's harder to make that argument now more than ever. Yeah. And, and being in the space again, and I, I People thought that when I did Pathfinder and, you know, I got I had a terrible relationship with security. They're the biggest fans because we were very deliberate. This creates better security of what to protect because you cannot protect everything equally and you have to triage and rank things. So I, I, I this, this is better security knowing what to really protect um, there's that old quote uh, from, I think it's McBundy George that was a national security advisor for President Kennedy. And he said, if you protect diamonds and toothbrushes with the same level of zeal, you're going to protect more toothbrushes and lose more diamonds. You really have to ask, what are you protecting? And when you're in this space every day and you know what state of the art is, you know what academic departments are doing, you know what the financial industry is doing with data, you have a better sense of saying, this is unique. This is worth protecting. Um, so I think that this is driving a lot of those questions. And I think based upon four months for folks that have never done this before, thrust in this space, I think the grade has been pretty good across the board. I think people have been very adaptive. This is so I'm, I'm optimistic. I think certain conditions need to happen. And I have one more 
world according to Chris point that I like to throw out there that I think that'll make it stick. Um, but I'm, I'm proud of, of NGA. Um, I, the, the kind of the antecedent work, um, that it had, um, uh, with Pathfinder, with the commercialization of GWINT, kind of what are we going to do things helped a lot when COVID hit. Um, so NGA was kind of a little bit ahead of other organizations, um, when that happened. Um, but, uh, before I do my last point, I'll see if there's any more questions in the chat. I think we're good there. No questions that I can see. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is the world according to Chris. And in fact, all of this is the world according to Chris. I I should have started out with my Simpsons lawyer, um, voice that this is, these are my views, not the organization's views. Um, but what I think that, uh, where investments should be made on the IC side and to try to do this is to really look into public trust cleared workers. So rather than a security clearance, which is an SF-86 form and investigation, is for the unclassified space, look into SF-85 investigations and clearances, which are basically a public trust clearance. Um, If we we were to do that and have a permanent group that was not cleared, they would have to stay at home. They They would have to collaborate in those unclassified spaces. And the opportunity is that we can leave people that don't want to move to skiff centers, which are DC, Tampa, Denver. They can stay in Montana if they have a good connection and generate code, generate unclassified research, generate GIS data from home with a public trust clearance um, or from an unclassified collaborative space someplace. So I, this is, I've put this in the, in the suggestions jar. Again, this is not. The agency's position, this is Chris's idea, um, but I think that organizations, particularly that, that have clearances, can look into why do we even need to clear everybody by default um, and to look into running just uncleared positions. Um, this is a question that tracks back that Karen and I were in this panel, I, or she was in the well, audience. Well, let, let me add but, to that real quick. Uh, I think you just opened the door to a, a not just a market gap, but a job gap that exists yeah. out there. And, and let me let me be more specific. Um, over the last ye- a couple of years, I've had a lot of uh, friends, connections in the military who, you know, they, they, they work in the classified realm. They work in, I'm sorry, they work in the intelligence spaces. They work in geoent, but they never reached the TSSCI level. They always they they may leave the military, even in the army. This is notorious with the army, actually, that they leave the uh, army intel with a secret clearance, and they can no longer get any type of uh, good job because they don't have TSSEI. And there's thousands of people in there who are forced to leave the intelligence career fields because it it's it's too much of a hardship to get the clearances back, and so they're having a hard time even. They want to apply, but they can't. They don't have an existing clearance. So why not use these individuals who have uh, just as much experience, if not more, in certain areas of expertise, especially when it comes to military tactical intelligence, and and uh, and, and find unclassified work for them? There's a if so if we're worried that there isn't a workforce out there that exists who we can leverage. I think that's there's a huge market gap for that right there. Yeah, so do I. And again, there are certain folks that are, 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 are don't want to do this work forever. And again, in Pathfinder, we recruited for that personality type and that skill set. But I think there is a massive untapped market of talent um, in the uncleared space that we can we can really maximize if we just think a little bit differently. And that's the key: is just question the assumptions. 
Um, why are we doing this again? Why do I have to be in the office? Why can't we do it here? What, you know, th- those are going to be key to guards of, 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 again, biases when you're doing analytic training. Everyone has bias, but you have to come up with exercises to draw down that bias. And, you know, here, when you get into just cruise control mode, I think making those questions, those, uh, questioning those assumptions along the way will go a long way. Um, and I think that we would, I think that the, the public trust thing will be great. Um, and not just on the government employee side. That's where it needs to happen. And we have some folks that are on the contract side that do this. But uh, this was about five years ago. And, and Karen and I were, I, I think she was on the panel, but we were in Florida. And somebody got up and said, I've been waiting for my clearance. I have all this these services and I'm just waiting for my clearance. And I just, this again, me being in space, I was on the panel for something else. But I was just like, what are you selling? And he, what he described to me, I'm like, why do you need a clearance at all? Um, you know, it was just kind of this, this assumption that this was the ticket to check to get there. I think that if public trust positions to sell unclassified services are sufficient to workers at home or workers in unclared spaces, I think that that's a huge opportunity. So we don't have to necessarily clear all of the contractors to do support work by default to enter the facility. Makes total sense. I want to thank you, Chris, for coming on to the show with us and uh, presenting your knowledge and best practices. I know a lot of folks will be interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, This has been uh, the topic, Will COVID Lessons Learn Stick? But even more than that, talking about work in the unclassified realm, uh, what agencies and and specifically NGA has learned, what Chris has learned to bring that workforce forward into, uh, well, I guess you could say the 21st century, right? Right. So uh, thank you for joining us. And this is Adam Simmons with the Project Geospatial, Geospatial Frontier Virtual Technology Fair, uh, signing off. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.